Good morning. My name is Mike Foster, and I'm the lead minister here at the Church of Christ at Hagerstown. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning and joining us in worship. And as we, we start today, uh, there was this time when Jesus was asked, he was asked a question by an expert in the law. And he comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what is the, the most important commandment? I mean, we have all these laws, but what's the most important one? If I only were to follow one, but what is the, the first one that I should make sure that I follow? What's the most important commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he goes, the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the law expert absolutely agreed. He goes, Jesus has a great answer. The first and greatest commandment is to love our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's also good that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. But I got one follow-up question for you. He says, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? See, this interchange became the prelude to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, in that story, Jesus uses a racial enemy of the Jews to be the hero of the story. This last week we have seen uh, acts of racial violence and injustice. And sometimes it's hard to sort through the noise to determine exactly what happened and, and why it happened. And while George Floyd uh, may have done something wrong, even done something deserving arrest, I'm sure that George Floyd should still be alive today. And before we think that all the, uh, the, the violence and all the injustice happens over there in a land far away, someplace that's not close to home, it happens here too. On Monday night, on Jonathan Street here in Hagerstown, a 15-year-old girl named Nevaeh was shot. Now, good news, she's recovering from her wounds. They were not fatal. But I know that none of us listening, none of us here today, want any of our children shot, or want any of our children to have to suffer through such injustice. So how does the church deal with injustice? I think it takes us back to the basics. The basics of loving the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 6. And sometimes when we, those of us who've been in the church a while, whenever we think of the book of Acts and we think of the early church, we think that the early church was like this utopian paradise. That somehow when it first got started, there was no trouble, there was no difficulty, there was no division, that everything uh, was just roses and rainbows all the time. And maybe they had some pushback from the outside, but everything inside the church was just perfect. But if you've been in a relationship with them for any length of time, you know that at some point along the way, there's going to be conflict. Someone once told me that if uh, two people always agree on everything all the time, one of them is not necessary. See, the church was growing, and as it was growing, it, 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 it was going through these early growth pains, in there, we find some conflict. And this is what Luke writes for us in Acts chapter 6. He says, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained. They complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together. And they said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you, 
who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to the ministry, uh, to prayer and ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and wit of the Holy Spirit. And also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Promanus, and Nicholas, who is from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. See, in these early days of the church, times were good. The number of disciples, they were increasing. It was growing, and it seemed like each day there are new people coming to faith, new people giving their life to Jesus, being baptized, and growing up in their faith. And that's what we want to see for our church as well, right? That would be our mission, to, to help connect people to Jesus. That's why we say that our, our purpose is to connect people to Jesus. That's our mission, it's our purpose, to help people get connected to Jesus, to grow up in their faith, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And that's when the problem starts. That's where the problem started. They, they were asking the same question Jesus was asked so many years ago. Who is my neighbor? And so we find that some of the Hellenistic Jews, well, they were complaining against the Hebraic Jews. And all that means is, is that uh, some Jewish people who had, who had more Greek culture were complaining against uh, Jewish people who had more of a Jewish culture. And you might be thinking, Michael, should they all be Christians by now? Aren't all these people in the church, shouldn't they go by the name Christian? But this was talking more of ethnic Judaism and not religious. While there was still a divide, it was not ethnically, but more geographically and culturally. You see, as if you go back to the Old Testament, you see uh, Israel, they, they wandered away from God, and God sent them into captivity. And a word that's used is a word called, is the word called diaspora. It means they were scattered. And so a number of, you know, they, they go into captivity and God scatters them across the world. And when God begins to welcome them back home, not everybody comes back home. Some stay in the land where they were at in captivity because they had developed a life there. They had a good life there. And so uh, they, they stayed there and they had families and businesses. But it wasn't uncommon. It wasn't uncommon that as as the families grew older, that they would often begin to make their way back to Jerusalem so they could die in the holy city. And so uh, as they come back, and, and the, oftentimes the husbands would, uh, would die first, this left a lot of widows uh, living among them who lived, had lived most of their life in cities of Greek influence. They had Greek-sounding names, and they had Greek preferences, but there wasn't necessarily strife between the group. It was just a normal social distancing that occurs because of language and cultural differences. You know, there's people who, like, they're good people, but we just don't have enough in common to be close with. See, their widows were being overlooked. Not on purpose. They were inadvertently left out. They had come late to the game and hadn't made their way, hadn't been connected enough in the social circles of the day. So these widows who moved back to Jerusalem late in life, they find themselves far from home and far from family. Be careful. In Judaism, they had this kind of this double system. 
where uh, to, to help the needy. The, the Jews would give a, a weekly allowance of, of enough money for 14 meals every Friday afternoon. So people would go and they could buy meals for the week. But there's also, uh, and th that was given to those who were residents. It was given to the resident needy. But they also had a daily distribution for the non-resident needy. And it consisted of food and drink that was delivered house to house wherever it was known that it was needed. It was kind of like a mobile soup kitchen. And, and in the, 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 the church had kind of a hybrid system of, of both of these. It was, it was both daily distribution of food, but it was also for the resident's need. And that's when the problem arises. That's when the problem arises. So the, the, the disciples, they get everybody together. Because while the problem only affects a small group of them, they want buy-in. They, they know they're going to need total participation in the solution. And so this is what the disciples say. The, the twelve get everybody together and they say, hey, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order for us to wait on tables. And what they're saying is, while it is our duty to make sure that everyone is cared for, it may not necessarily be our duty to always provide that care directly. See that phrase, uh, it would not be right. But it means that it, was not be, it would not be pleasing in God's sight. See, while it's always leadership's responsibility to make sure things get done, it's not always their job to get it done. Then it's not always their job to do it. See, I, I may not always be the best person to do something. Reminds me this week, we had a memorial service for a longtime member of our church. Dorothy Baker passed away at the age of 98. And, and, and in her later years, she was not able to come to church as often because of uh, uh, aches and pains of her body and just uh, the, the illnesses that she may have had and just the not being able to get around quite as well. She often asked for me to come visit her and sometimes she'd be at her home and sometimes she'd be at the home of her daughters and not knowing where she's at, she'd, she'd say, Mike, can you come visit me? And she'd often pass this message through Pam Brown. And see, while I may have always been the best person to go, Pam, Pam was an excellent person. She could go and she, she, was, she connected very well with Miss Dorothy. And I'd go and, and, and share and spend time with Miss Dorothy from time to time. And she would tell stories of, 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 of all of her children and life on the farm and of her faith. But I think sometimes I wasn't always the best person to minister, minister to her because Pam did it so well. So the disciples were like, this needs to be done. We need to care for these people. But, but when we look at our priorities, we need to prioritize the ministry of prayer and the word. And, and there are others who could perform this ministry. The key role of the disciples was to bear witness to the ministry of Jesus, to continue to pass on the teaching of Jesus to those who are becoming disciples, becoming believers. And so they determined that this would be a good solution. They said, hey, brothers and sisters, hey, church, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we'll turn their, this responsibility over to them. Here's what we want you to do. Look amongst your group. Look amongst the church. And find seven men. Seven men who have evidence of the Spirit working in their life. That there is a spiritual maturity about them. That there is a, a, a display of the Spirit's work in their life. And that they're men of wisdom. 
This wisdom probably refers more to our practical knowledge. Would they, can we trust them? Can we entrust them with the, the knowledge of how to maybe manage the funds? Are they trustworthy with money? Are they, <coughs> excuse me, are they trustworthy in the distribution of goods? And so they say, hey, find these seven men, and we'll turn over to them to make sure these Hellenistic, these, these Grecian widows are cared for. So the disciples can continue their primary task of the prayer and the work and preaching and bearing witness to Jesus. And Luke writes for us that this proposal pleased everyone. And that might be a miracle in and of itself. I mean, how many plans do you know of, do you know of at church or even life anywhere that pleases everyone? I, I'm sure that as we are, are uh, making plans to, to gather again, there's some of us, there's some of me who, who might be frustrated because we're not opening up fast enough. And there might be some among you who think that we're opening up too fast, too quickly. We're doing things a, a little bit too rushed. But this plan pleased everyone. This plan pleased everyone. And it says that they chose. Who, who are the ones doing the choosing? Was it the, the disciples? Was it the apostles? Was it the twelve? No, they turned that over to the church. It says, hey, church, you choose from among yourselves these seven people, these seven men. And so the disciples, the, the apostles of the twelve, they were, they were key in the leadership of coming up with the proposal. They left it to the people to carry out. See, it's likely that all seven of them came from the group of Hellenistic believers. Those, because if you notice, they all have Greek-sounding names. And if you read through the list, there's a couple of these names that might sound familiar. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, the names Stephen and Philip ought to sound familiar. And there's also two names that have special notations, both Stephen and Nicholas. Nicholas, it says, is a man from Antioch, which was a territory north of, of Jewish territory. He was, he was not from a Jewish background. But not only that, he was first a convert to Judaism. And then he became a Christian. So he was a Gentile. He was a non-Jewish person who converted to Judaism and then became a Christian. Stephen is the, the other name. And he said he is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And he sounds like a perfect candidate for this position. I said Philip is another name that you ought to know. And if you look a couple chapters ahead, God uses Philip to encounter a, a, an influential Ethiopian man on his way back home from Jerusalem. So we see that these men were full of the Spirit, that God empowered them to serve those in the area. And not just to, to, to serve food, but we see Philip influencing an Ethiopian man. And just a few verses after this, we see Stephen making, uh, uh, preaching about Jesus to those in Jerusalem. After they are chosen, so the, the disciples lay their hands on the men and pray over them. So there's nothing special about this laying on of hands. This is, this is them more to set them apart. It's to confirm the congregation's decision. This is much more like a, a commissioning service an emphasis uh, to, not to a specific office, 
bit to a specific task. You're to accomplish this certain task to help make sure that these needs are met. And what happened? What was the result of, of this decision, this, this action? It says the word of God spread. The word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Here's what happens. When we decentralize the ability to serve, the church grows. When we uh, decentralize those who can participate in ministry, the church grows. You know, when, when we uh, allow, when we place the ability to have influence and to meet the needs of others, and we take it out of the hands of few and put it into the hands of many, the church goes from addition to multiplication. See, it didn't just grow, it grew rapidly. And see, as if you read, you go back and you read through the book of Acts, at first, Luke can put numbers on it. You know, the church grew, you know, uh, you know the church had 3,000, and about 5,000 men, and they were adding people daily. And now it's just so big that Luke can't put numbers on it. Not only did the church grow and grow rapidly, but it began to grow among people of influence. And it says a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So I wonder, what keeps our church from being like the early church? There it seemed that, that life change was happening daily, that, 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 that uh, people were making a decision to choose Jesus as their Savior daily. They were, they were baptizing people daily. And I think it's that the responsibility of the many has been put in the hands of few. See, the responsibility to love your neighbor as yourself is not for just a few, but for everyone. The, the responsibility to make disciples is not just for a few, but for the many. And as we begin to decentralize ministry, as we give everyone particip- uh, uh, permission to play, we've got to see the church go from addition to multiplication. See, the church, the early church, it operated in sort of a special niche. The, the, it seemed to start kind of as this separate sect of Judaism. But it began to grow in influence. And it spread not just from the, the, those who lived in, were, were of Jewish influence in Jerusalem, but also those of other cultures. When they began to make this shift, they could have said, you know, we don't serve your type here. But instead, the disciples don't close the doors, but they open the doors wide open to make sure that everyone would have the opportunity to be loved by their neighbors. They would make sure that they were loving all their neighbors as themselves. See, we're all sinners and deserve judgment. We're all sinners in need of Christ. And in Christ, we are loved more than we dared hope. See, Jesus says to us, the Father loves you just as he loves me. And Jesus proved the Father's love by taking our sin upon himself. See, in our form of American Christianity, uh, we have this kind of built-in self-determination. That for some reason, we think we have to make it up to God because we don't want to owe anybody anything. That We want to be able to say that I did it my way. But the truth is, we can never, we can never fully pay God back. By coming to him, it ought to change us from the inside out. 
to create in us a new identity. As we make Jesus our Savior, ought to lead us to make uh, to, to help us find our identity in Jesus. And when our identity is in Jesus, it ought to reorder all of our other loves. See, maybe today you need to find your identity in Jesus. Maybe today you've been choosing between many other loves, and you find them, them all less than satisfying. Maybe you, you, in, in chasing these after these other loves, these other desires, you find them all wanting. Whatever it is, whatever it is you choose to make your identity, that is what you're a slave to. Maybe you make it your work, your figure, yourself, your hopes, your goals, your dreams. Whatever you make your identity, that is what you are a slave to. You think you think we are free. But we're not. We've just chosen a different master. But if you are living, if you're living for anything but God, you're just a slave. But Jesus, Jesus is the only master. Jesus is the only master that if you get him, he will truly satisfy you. And if you fail him, he will forgive you. So if you want to start a journey to your new identity in Jesus, text the word love to 240-347-0897. And we'd love to help you begin this journey, to, to walk this process with you and helping to find your identity in Jesus, your salvation and hope and grace in Jesus. See, it all starts with a love for God and a love for others. Those are the two greatest commandments. That our love for God will drive us closer to Him, to rely more upon Him, to, to go to Him daily for strength and grace and mercy. But as we go to Him, we find that it's, it's not for us alone. It's never for ourselves alone. But that we ought to go to Him so that we can serve others. That we go to Him so we can serve those who are around us. So that we can love our neighbors as ourselves better. So we can respond better to the injustices that we see around us. Martin Luther King Jr. said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And if the early church would have allowed the widows of Greek influence to go unserved, what would that have said to the community at large? We have spoken directly against Jesus' words to love your neighbor as yourself. Would have, it would have been an injustice to that community. It would have kept them from sharing the grace and mercy shown in Jesus to others in that community. And what we stand, when we stand with victims of injustice, when we stand with victims of violence, we're given a greater voice to offer hope and mercy to those in need. When we correctly answer, when we correctly respond to the question, who is my neighbor? We see our influence and impact for Jesus increase. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have a hold of our identity. That, Father, we can find and place our identity in you. And so, Father, I pray that today we seek you with a whole heart that we follow after you, that we look for you to you for, for grace and for mercy, that we can take that love to others who are suffering. That, Father, we might show them your great love. We might show them that you are enough, that only in you can we fully and truly be satisfied. 
Father, we thank you that you are more than enough for us. And I pray that you help us seek you and find you daily. That, Father, as we go by our day, that we will have our eyes open to those who need to know of your love, need to know of your grace, need to know of your mercy. And, Father, would you use us to serve those who are around us, that we might share with them ultimately the grace purchased for them in Jesus. Father, we thank you that you've saved us, that you love us. We pray that you are continually making us more like you, so we can glorify you more each day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.